Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, hello. Hi. (laughs) It's Wednesday night, and that means it's time for Friends and Fiction. Tonight, we have a very special show for you because we have not one, but two featured guests. We're so excited to introduce you to both Armando Lucas Correa and Catherine Ray, both of whom have written books that are perfect to curl up with this month as the weather turns cooler. So let's get started. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Patty Callahan-Henry. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. And tonight we're missing Christy Woodson-Harvey, but she'll be back next week. And this, as you know, is Friends in Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support independent bookstores. And we have such a fun and exciting partner this month and next month also, perfect timing, Butterball Turkey. Because we're going to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the famed Turkey Talk Line all month long. So you want to make Turkey Talk Line. You want to make sure to join us on our Talking Turkey with Butterball after show tonight. We're going to be chatting about the history of the Turkey Talk Line and mentioning some of our favorite turkey recipes. And we will be sharing those with you this month and December. And as you probably already know, the heart of our original mission was to encourage you to support independent booksellers when and where you can. And one way to do that is to visit our very own Friends and Fiction Bookshop.org page, where you'll find Armando's book and Catherine's book and books by the four of us and our past guests all at a discount. Of course, at bookshop.org, a portion of each sale goes to the Friends in Fiction shop to support indies and this show. So if you enjoy watching, this is a great way to support all of our guests because anyone we have ever had on the show is in our bookshop.org bookstore. It's actually kind of cool when you check it out, right? Like to I know. Like, talk to all those people about all those books. Like how lucky are we, right? I know. So both of the books we're talking about tonight are about family. In the case of Armando's In Search of Emma, we're talking about building a family. And in Catherine's The London House, we're talking about digging into family secrets. As we approach the holidays, ladies, I would love to hear about a time when something related to your own family changed something about life for you. How about you, Mary Kay? You know, you asked me this earlier in the week, and I really had to think about it. And um, I think I have to say, you know, my both my parents and my older sister passed away very unexpectedly um, within about three years of each other. And one morning I woke up, uh, my older sister was 20 months older than me. And one morning I woke up and I thought, oh my God, all of a sudden, I'm the matriarch. Oh, my gosh. oh wow. Chills. Yeah. I mean, my older sister was large and in charge of everything. 
And uh, we all just did what she said. And same thing with my mom. And so, um, and I guess now I'm large and in charge too. Oh, wow. That's why that- I get to walk you all around. <laughs> and you do and we well. like you. We <laughs> I, know. I don't know why. You it's don't, how, oh, it's how we all finished our books last year because you bossed <laughs> us around and said, get to work, ladies. There is you're, you're a beneficent matriarch. Yes. <laughs> beneficent. Beneficent. Is that no, the word? You are... It's benevolent. Benevolent. It's the opposite of malevolent. How, yes. how many and readers does it take? Malevolent, but <laughs> you are benevolent. All right. I think that, I mean, there have been so many instances where our families shift. You find something yeah. out, you, um, you know, somebody gets married, you get a new son-in-law. But I think one of the biggest times that our family transitioned about the ideas of what family is is when my sister, who had placed her child for adoption 20 years before, found us. And, you know, now the families are all family and everybody is close. And it is one of the most joyous days. I've written about it. But it redefined what family is to all of us. Wow. That's incredible. You know, I I was thinking about this question, too. And one of the things I was thinking about was losing, losing my grandmother. Um, she had dementia. And so we lost her very slowly um, with her memories kind of slipping away day to day. And um, that was something that really changed our family because I, I think at least for me, I realized too late how many stories she was taking with her that I yeah. didn't know. And, you know, there were flashes. There were, there were pieces of her late in that, in that, um, in that whole cycle, right? Like where she was gone for the most part, but then she'd come back for a little while almost. And, mm-hmm. and you could ask those questions or she'd tell the story from 30 years ago, but there were these little snippets and it wasn't enough. So I, I think it made me realize how important it is um, to talk while we still can, you know, to, yeah. to share yeah. those family stories and those family memories. Yeah. But anyhow, we have such a great show for you tonight. And I want to introduce you to our first guest, Armando Lucas Correa, a best-selling writer, journalist, and editor who has a lot to say about family. Armando entered the world of print journalism in 1988 when he was appointed the editor of Tablas. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that a national theater and dance magazine in Havana, Cuba. His career as an American journalist would begin three years later at El Nuevo Herald, which is the Miami Herald's Spanish edition newspaper, where Kristen's sister-in-law got her journalism start too. (laughs) We're always tied together. Everything's tied together. Armando later began working as a senior writer a senior writer. Wow. At People and Espanol. You guys have got to learn not to give me the pronunciation problems. Um, senior writer at People and Espanol magazine and has worked at the mag- as the magazine's editor-in-chief since 2007. Armando's first novel, The German Girl, is an international bestseller and has been translated to 14 languages and published in more than 20 countries. He followed that up with another novel, The Daughter's Tale, in 2019. 
He received Outstanding Achievement Awards from the Society of Professional Journalism and the National Association of Hispanic Publications. He was also recognized as the Journalist of the Year by the Hispanic Public Relations Association of New York, and he received the Humanity of Connection Award from AT&T. How cool is that? That's so cool. Yeah. Very cool. Now, Armando is a graduate of the University of Arts in Cuba and has a pomegranate degree in journalism from the University <laughs> of Havana. He currently resides. <laughs> I win. He currently resides in Manhattan with his partner and their three children. The first ever English translation of his first book, In Search of Emma, Two Fathers, One Daughter, and the Dream of a Family, was released on October 12th with a new introduction by Armando. Wonderful. I cannot wait to talk to him about it. Sean, can you bring Armando on, please? Hi. Hi, Armando. Welcome. We're Thank so excited. You. And, and you know, all of you, that you pronounced it, all the names in Spanish perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to present my book in Special Fema here today with you. Thank you very oh, much. Yeah. We're so oh. happy to have you. Yeah. Armando, can you begin today by telling us about In Search of Emma? Oh my God, In Search of Emma uh, is my my most personal book, and one I never thought I, I'd write. I remember that an editor at uh, HarperCollins came to my office at People in Espanol, and I thought he was interested in publishing a book about legendary Hispanic celebrities. But he actually wanted to talk me into writing a book about I how I had my daughter be a surrogacy. I was shocked. And I, I usually don't speak or write about my personal life. It took me, took him like a while to convince me. But I agreed to do it. You know why? Because when I went over notes, I had been keeping throughout the process. I discovered I had extensive record of conversation I had wow. with my family over the years. It took me to make Emma. Think about it. Uh, uh, I started the process in 1998, 1999, and I had my daughter in 2005. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's such a long road. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. Now, um, how old are they? So, so Emma is 16 now. Is that right? She's going to be 16 on this, uh, this Sunday, by the way. Oh my goodness. Oh, happy, happy birthday, happy birthday, Emma. birthday to yeah. her. And then yeah. you have two younger children also, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, when Emma was like a two and a half years old, we were living in Miami during those years. And I remember her saying, oh, my God, I, I, Dad, I want to have a brother and a sister. And, and then I talked to my partner, Gonzalo. I said, eh, because, you know, the process was, you know, very expensive. And we said, we'll never go back there. <laughs> but when, you know, two years later, when Emma mentioned that, I said, Gonzalo, we have a couple of embryos frozen. Let's try. No, no, I can't do that again. Oh, you know, wow. it, it was a nightmare. And uh, I said, okay, let's talk to the surrogate mother, you know, uh, Mary, and she's available. Let's do it. If not, we're going to explain Emma later. And then we talked to Mary after having Emma, you know, by the law in California to become a, a surrogate mother, you have to be a mother. You have to have a child. And then oh, we had Emma, and after Emma, she has another girl. And oh, she wow. said, okay, give me a couple of months, and, <laughs> and I think I'm going to be ready. Let me talk to my husband first. But, you know, for you guys, I'm going to do whatever you want. Oh, and then wow. you know, the next day, we received the call, and he said, Gonzalo, let's do it. And with the twin, it was like an easy process. 
We did the first oh. transfer and we have no one. We have two, a boy oh. and a girl. Oh my goodness. Oh, that's now, beautiful. Now you've just talked to us about the joyousness mm-hmm. about um, how you how you got your children. But would you talk about the challenges you faced on the road to having Emma? And I know that when you began this journey, there were roadblocks right away at the time. At the time, same-sex couples couldn't adopt children in oh, yeah. Florida where you were living. So if you, you would tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. When, you know, Gonzalo and I, we met after college in Cuba. We came together to, to the States. And when I started working full-time at the Herald, we bought, two years later, we bought our first house with a big backyard in Florida, you know. And I said, Gonzalo, I think we're ready to have a, to create a family. And he said, you are crazy. We're not going to do that. That's impossible. We came to this country a couple of years ago. You know, we're learning the language now. And and then I started doing my research. And I remember sending letters to China, emails to Ukraine, to Guatemala in Latin America. And then I realized that it was illegal to adopt for us in Florida. But, you know, it, it, it's a good news now. Same-sex couple can now adopt children in the old Fizzy state. Some oh, state man, I didn't know that. That's awesome. But fostering children, however, is still complicated for same-sex couple. But at the beginning, it was, it was impossible to us. I remember having a meeting with one of the agencies. I said, okay, you can say you are going to have your child by yourself. Don't mention Gonzalo. But, you know, I can't and can't lie For me, it was impossible to do that. We moved to New York, and I remember working at at People in Espanol as a senior writer. I have access to the files of people, and they they prepare a story. They were editing a story that is going to be published two weeks later about a gay guy who has a daughter via surrogacy with an egg donor. And I, I read the article. I called the agency immediately. They said, "What do you know that? Because the article is going to be in two weeks. I explained to them that I was working in the same company. Uh, uh, I remember he mentioned that he spent like a $75,000 when I explained to Gonzalo. Oh. Now, that's impossible. We don't have that money. We just bought our first apartment in New York. We sold the house in Miami. What do you think? You're going to get the money? And I said, don't worry. Uh, we're going to find the money. If we have to sell the apartment, we sell the apartment. And we sold the apartment uh, to make Emma. Emma cost over $125,000. Oh with all the God. accidents, with all the la- lawyers and changing the donor, all the. But you know, uh, and, and this is something that I sound maybe cheesy for you, but the biggest accomplishment, more than anything that I have done, uh, ever done uh, in my work life, including writing and publishing my books, is having my children. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. Now that you talked about you, you after you had Emma, you had two more, Anna and Lucas. Mm-hmm. And you write very honestly in the book about the challenges you all face, sometimes from people who just refuse to accept you as a family. And I know that you said in the introduction that there were those who said, Emma, Anna, and Lucas weren't your children. Um, They refused to baptize your children. And even those Mm -hmm. who said, I mean, this is just horrible to me that they would rather die than have two dads. It's painful. I think it's painful to read 
And it must have been difficult for you to write about and, and for your kids to face that. Could yeah, you talk yeah. about that and how you overcome those challenges? I, I, you know, uh, with all my children, this is an open book. You know, they know how they were made. They yeah. know the story. Uh, before having, you know, uh, uh, writing in search of Emma, I create like a small book with picture for her when she was like a two years old. And it's called In Search of Emma with all the picture of the family, the surrogate mother, the egg donor. And they know the process. And I remember when she started kindergarten and after school, she had piano classes and one boy, uh, she saw, you know, he saw that it was to dad. Right. And I am, I am Papa and Gonzalo is Papi. And then uh, he said to her, uh, if you have to dad, you have to be adopted. And she said, no, no, I am not adopted. Yes, you are adopted. And then she came home and she, she explained to us, and it was simple. You know, Emma, you know, you are not adopted. It's fine to be adopted, but you are not adopted. You have to die. And then the next day when we, we went to school to pick her up, the teacher said, eh, eh, pale, said, oh, my God, Emma is very shy. She never talked in classroom. But at the end of the class, she said she wants to explain how she was made. And she said, okay, Papa, you know me, eh, donate a, a worm. Uh, the doctor put her in, in the in the plate, and, and you know the uh, egg donor. She said the name. I can mention the name publicly. Put an egg, and with a spoon, they remove <laughs> the plate, and they create an embryo. And they put the embryo, two embryos inside Mary, and one of the embryo is me. They always have that kind of reaction. I remember, you know, it was before the before the pandemic in, in our house upstate. We have a couple of friends visiting. Some of them they have a boy, the same age of Anna. Anna right now is gonna be 12 in December. And I think they were like a nine or ten. And after dinner, when they left, they said, Oh, the boy said that he preferred to be dead. Uh, Instead oh, of having to that. And you know, Emma said, Oh, who cares? It's his problem. You know, the boy is the same. And I, <laughs> once I said, No, I don't care. This is his problem. If you want to be dead, this is his problem. You know, it's not mine. You know, they are very open and they understand that they're going to have that kind of confrontation. And I remember when, we, you know, because we're Catholic, maybe we are not religious, but my family, they're Catholic. For both sides, and we, when we want to baptize them, the priest said in Miami, by the way, that he can put the both name on the you know on the program for the right. he was only one that said so, no, we are not going to do that. When we have the twins, uh, we were in Pasadena, California, and across the street it was a, a, a church. I think it was a Methodist church, and we went to pray on Sunday. You know, we had the kids; they were premature. And then we talked to the, you know, the, the priest came to us and we talked to him and said, oh, you want to baptize them? Oh, yes. And then, you know, they were like a, a couple of days old. And with Emma, we baptized the three of them. And then, Oh, all at the same know, time. Some people closed door, others opened the door. Yes. That's such a good point. Oh, wow. All right, Armando. Even though In Search of Emma is a new release, it's actually only new in translation. Am I right? Yeah. I'm okay. going to explain that because, you know, I wrote in Spanish and after uh, many years was able to get in translating English thanks to the success of the German girl and the daughter still. Yeah. I always said that the German girls exist thanks to Emma. 
uh, because it was Johanna Castillo, my first editor, and now she's my literary agent, who read Emma in Spanish and told me I should write a novel. And I, I told her that every writer's or those who want to be writer have a novel already written. I didn't speak to her about the no that novel I had, but uh, uh, of a few chapters that I had written about the St. Louis. And a few days later, I was signing a contract with Simon Schuster to publish the novel I had yet to write. I, I remember I presented only a couple of pages, 10 pages, I think, with a storyline and all my research, you know, because, you, you know, Christine, all of you know that when you are doing historical novel, you get obsessed with the, yep. the facts and the pictures. <laughs> and and yeah. if, you go to, if you go to my apartment now, I have like a small museum uh, about the St. Louis, have played uh, original menus, a postcard, a, a lot of pictures, documents, books in language that I don't read. But uh, uh, I, I always said that thanks, Emma, I am a writer now because of That's her. So awesome. That is amazing. And for those of you who don't know, um, his two historical fiction novels are The German Girl and The Daughter's Tale. But you are also the longtime editor-in-chief for People and Espanol, mm -hmm. and you have a long journalism background. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the through line from this book to your novels that came afterward. I want to know how you knew that this was something you could do. I know that your editor said you're a story writer, but yeah. what did you do inside of you that said, okay, I'm going to go for this? Yeah, uh, I, I think the first time that I heard about the St. Louis, you know, this uh, ocean liner with over 900 Jewish refugees living in Hamburg, uh, Nazi Germany in 1939, all of them with permit of disembarking Cuba. I'm Cuban. Mm -hmm. And when they arrived, they denied the entrance. You know, the government, the president at that moment requested another $500 per passenger. That that was a fortune at that moment. Oh, wow. And then the, uh, weeks later, they trying to go to United States and uh, Roosevelt denied the entrance to the Mackenzie from Canada. All of them returned to different countries in Europe, Belgium, France, Great Britain, and and the only, the only one who survived the war was the, the one in Great Britain, around 200, because the rest of them, you know, the, the war started in September and the end in Auschwitz. And there's a couple of survivors, you know, the children. And I remember, I, I, I think I heard this story for the first time uh, when I was like a 10 years old. I remember my grandmother. My grandmother is the daughter of a Spanish immigrant who arrived in Cuba at the beginning of the 20th century. And oh, she, wow. said, she said all the time, Cuba around me. Cuba is going to pay very dearly because of what they did to the Jewish refugees. Oh, I just got goosebumps. And, and wow. when, I, when I went to college, I, I'm trying, yeah. I have access to the National Archive that in Cuba is really hard to get there. And uh, I asked about the San Luis, if, if they have some material, some information. And in whispering, you know, the librarian said to me, oh, Armando, uh, we used to have like a couple of boxes labeled with the St. Louis and all of them disappeared in the 1970s. No. And then when I arrived in the in, in, in United States, I working at the Herald, I started, you know, reading and buying materials. And uh, I have some chapters of the book from 1997, 1998. Wow. 
And at the beginning, I was thinking to create like a nonfiction book because I am a journalist. I said, okay, I'm going to interview a historian. I'm going to talk to the survivors. I, I found one in Miami, one in New York. And when I have Emma in 2005, everything changed. You know, I, I realized that I need to tell this story from the point of view of a father. That was my idea at the beginning. Wow. But when I talked to Johanna, I think Emma is going to give voice to the book. And then I remember the first line more or less is, uh, I'm going to be 12 years old. And I decided to kill my parents. But at the beginning, it was nine years old because Emma was nine, then 10, 11. And, and 10, then 11, then 12. Emma was 12 years old. And I always said that, you know, Emma, Emma, and became becoming a father changed my 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 life completely you know and and then the the book had this emotional connection with the uh, children's and the father and you know and i'd love how she not only inspired you to become a storyteller but then inspired you to tell it from that point of view that's amazing Well, it's it's interesting you say that because, you know, I think something that the German girl and the daughter's tale both have in common is this idea of people being children being separated from their parents, Mm -hmm. children, you know, and, and, and the pain of that separation. So you mentioned Emma being a little bit of an inspiration for that. Do you think that you tapped into that idea of being separated from Emma for a long time before you had her. I mean, you were separated from almost this, this right to have a child. You wanted a child so much and you, you knew she was out there and you knew you would love her. Um, You know, and and then finally you were together. Was that part of what went into this novel? Do you think? Or both both of the novels? Right now, when you're mentioning, I'm thinking about it, but I remember when, uh, Mary, Mary said, I'm pregnant, and you know, and she's based in San Diego, California, and we are in New York, you know, six hours by plane, yeah. the distance. I remember, you know, uh, I was talking to, to my daughter uh, from the distance, you know, think about it, think about it because you are a woman, and if you are having a child and your child is not with you, it's like in a long, long distance, you know, the, the sense of time and distance change completely for you. And then you have to communicate with her because uh, I know when the, if, if you, heart, you have everything around you, it's completely different. And for me, it was, uh, I was getting anxious all the time. With the twins, it was different, but I didn't remember with Emma. I went to all the doctor appointments. You know, I, I wow. took the early flight in the morning and coming back in the red eye. Yeah. Every week, sometimes twice a week, because I have to work. You know, I, I, I was saving my vacation for when yeah. Emma is going to uh, born. And then I remember that I was flying all the time, back and forth, back and forth, going to all these appointments. And therefore, the biggest appointment, I have the whole family, you know, we're a Cuban family. And I remember the first ultrasound to, uh, to know if there's going to be a boy or a girl. We were 16 people in this small room. Oh, with my goodness. <laughs> And I remember the, the, the doctor said, uh, she's, she's a girl. How is going to be the name? It's a girl, Emma. Okay, I think she's Emma. She's still an Emma. I said, well, maybe it's going to change because, you know, it's depending, yeah. depending where they're moving around yeah. the bed in every belly. I said, she's still Emma, and I think she's going to be an Emma. Oh, <laughs> beautiful. 
Beautiful. That is. So um, Armando, I, I have one more follow-up question about that, but I just wanted to say to anybody out there, if you have a question for Armando, I think we're going to have um, a couple of extra minutes to take a few of them. So do plug your question in if you have one. But you know, Armando, I was also thinking both of your historical novels are about Jews fleeing the Germans during World War II, mm-hmm. becoming immigrants, and then seeking to settle elsewhere. And you mentioned that you yourself are an immigrant from Cuba, which yeah. of course is such a part of an important part of your own story and your own identity. So even though you were writing fiction, do you think that there was a piece of your own life that you were writing in those two books in yeah. terms of summoning the courage to start over again, someplace new and unfamiliar? Yeah, I think they, the, I, I remember when I was promoting the book in Australia because uh, the German girl, the first country that became a bestseller was Australia. The second one, it was Canada and then the United States. And uh, doing the tour for 15 days in Australia, everybody said that I, I wrote the book because it was in the, I, I remember it was in the middle of the the Syrian crisis. You remember all these Syrian oh, yeah. refugees running yeah. around Europe trying to find a country. And I said, okay, you have to understand when the book is published, you finish. I, in mind, there is in Spanish. You have to send it to London to translation. It's like, a, you know, I finished the book three years ago. And I never thought about the Syrian crisis, but at the end, all these stories are connected. I am a refugee at the end too. And, and, and I, I, everybody said, I mentioned, I realized that all my books and even when I was promoting the Doresel and the one that I finished now, the night traveler is about the, the fear that we have for the other one, you know, the people who oh, has a different no. skin color or the people who, who believe in different God or have a different sexual orientation. We always afraid of the other one and, and all my books and all everything that I write has to be, I, I am including me, you know, we always think we want our children to marry people like us. You know, yeah. we always afraid of, I, I live in, in a co-op in New York. And if you know, a co-op in New York is like a nightmare to get in. <laughs> and my my building from 1905 is one of the oldest co-op in in the west side in Manhattan. And I remember when we applied, they said that we were the first Hispanic uh, family applying in the co-op. Even the su- the you know the superintendent is Irish. And and when we applied, we were the same couple, of course. And and my partner became a, a member of the board. And I remember that we started receiving emails a couple of weeks later uh, and saying about another application. And they explained the woman is a nice woman. The woman is a, is a, is a doctor. And, the, you know, the family is going to pay for the apartment or whatever. And, and the husband is very nice. They always said the husband is very nice. And then we realized that the guy was black. And <laughs> he was the first black, you know. And they, they didn't know how to explain that to the rest of us. In the right. wow. But we're always afraid of the other yeah. one, the people who look different. We need to, you know, we need to fight with all these yeah. prejudice that we have. All of us have it. No, I'm mm-hmm. not excluding me. Yeah. Wow. And I'm- I think all the books, everything that I write, it has to be related. There is something yeah. there, I always. And it's always about family and family yep. separation. Yep. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, 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 I grew up around 
a strong woman, my grandmother, my mother, my sister, my aunt, my mother divorced my father when I was two and a half years old. It was during the 60s, uh, beginning of the 70s. My mother wanted to go to college, and my father thought that he has to stay taking care of the children. And then she became an, a, a, an engineering and very successful one. She's living in Miami, still working. And, and I always have done, you know, great admiration about a strong woman. And that's the reason maybe... Uh, I, became, I want to become a father because I, I grew up with, with the absence of one. But at the same time, all the character is about this strong woman, I think. Yeah. Wow, that's true. And when you started writing personally, you mm-hmm. had been you had spent so long. I mean, if you're writing for people in Espanol, you are writing about other people and their lives and their stories mm-hmm. and these nuggets of stories. I want to hear a little bit about how you went from... because. Mary Kay did the same thing. And you're writing about other, you know, she would write about a a trial or something that happened. Mm -hmm. And then you had to completely turn that lens inward to who you are and how you felt. Was that, I want to hear about that transition and how that I I, I don't know Mary Kay, but in in my case, I live a very hectic life. You know, I am very busy here, closing a a magazine, working on the website. I have three children. But for me, writing uh, is like my my zen zone. You know, it's yeah. my. You know, I I I'm, I don't do yoga. I'm, I I don't. <laughs> I walk a lot. I love walking for miles every day in the city of say. And then when I'm writing, is is my therapy. Is my you know is is the moment that I can be creative and yeah. be myself and be my world. And I, I, I always said that I am a, a reader who writes, you know, I, I was a child who was reading all the time. And, and, and then even when I start writing every day, I have to read at least, you know, 30, 40 minutes. I, wow. I, when I, I read my, my brain wake up all the time. Yeah. I don't need something for outside to come to me, inspiration, something like that. I have to read. When I read, then you, you can start uh, working hard. And it's, it's, you know, writing is working. Yeah. And yeah. you have to play this song and, and, and you have to write every day. Yeah. You know, you guys, if you are writing, you have to write every day. When yeah. You have a deadline and you, if you sell the book, you know, right now I, I sold two two more books and it was only one sentence in one of them. The other one, it was a paragraph. And wow. And <laughs> you have to have a deadline, you know, I, I have yeah. to finish something that I have been writing for a couple of years, but it's, it's, it's discipline. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, speaking of that, Bruce Gilbert has a question for you. He wants to know when your next novel will be out and if you'll tell us what the title is. Yeah. Uh, my next novel is going to, uh, uh, it's The Night Traveler. Uh, oh, that's uh, a great title. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. That's know, a great I know, title. But, but I, I love the title. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a quote from from a, a, a very famous poet, a roomy poet, is night travelers are full of light. And I decided to okay. take the title from there. And it's going to be published uh, October 18, 2022. Great. I finished before the pandemic. Oh, wow. Uh, and then, you know, the, the publishing house decided until we are back to normal, have the book outside. And 
uh, we finished the English time. You know, I, I write in Spanish, but I work really close with my translator and with the editor in English. And then I have to go back to the Spanish. And and this is a book like uh, I really like because I started writing before The German Girl. Oh, wow. wow. You know, I put it on the side. And I, I explained to Johanna Castillo at, at that moment, my editor, that I need to do more research. And and because, you know, I have to finish The German Girl because it's, I, it was in my mind for many years. Yeah. And but it was the first idea that I, I have to to my 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 editor. Let's, let's publish now. The night travel before the night. The daughter said, "No, no, the daughter still it has to be now." Oh, okay. Every, every book had, you know, their times. I think. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes yeah. we don't know what that time is. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> sometimes somebody else has to tell us that. And that is that sometimes stories bubble in the back of our minds for a little bit until they're yeah. ready to be written. They take yeah, time. they have to percolate a little. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So Armando, one of our favorite parts of the show is the segment where we get to ask our guests for a writing tip. Do you perhaps have a writing tip you could share with us today? Okay. Uh, you know, every writer is different. Uh, uh, I am the one because I am I am not a full-time writer. I need to write at least 500 words per day. Ah, and that, but that's part of my, my goal. When I am in a better zone, I, I try to write over 1,000, but it's oh. too much for me, you know. And But 500 is, is fine. Another thing that I'm doing recently during the pandemic and the communication, and I think I'm going to keep it forever, is I have a fellow a fellow writer that we communicate via Zoom, and every day during long shower we connected and we decide to talk for only five minutes, like whatever we want to talk, and then we put a mute and we write for one hour, one hour and a half, or the time oh, that we have. Monday to Friday, and then at the end, you know the next day we can talk about what we wrote. But uh, that's discipline. And, and for me, the most important, if you want to be a writer, the only thing that you need to do is write. Yeah. You know, yeah. Some, some, some of us were more lucky that we can present an idea and they buy the idea. But ideally, is to have a book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That would be the best thing. <laughs> I don't know, guys, but I'm trying to write more than I'm going to be published. Because if, if I have, I don't know, uh, I remember that the German girl, the first draft, it was around 200,000 words. Oh, and my goodness. Oh, wow. You know, I am the first editor for my books after okay. my mother read it. And I got it to 175. And then uh, before going to my editor, uh, I got another 20,000 words. I remember when... We it went to Johanna, it was 135, wow. and before going to the translator, we ended in 125,000. But I wow. prefer to have more yeah. than less, and then you know, you keep it maybe for the other book because you know, sometimes we dedicate a lot of time in a sentence, <laughs> we want the sentence and the paragraph to be perfect, and sometimes it's perfect, but it's not perfect for the book, yeah. and then you save it, you save it, it's Just never, save it. yeah. Kind of that, that's my tip. I think you want to be a writer, be perseverance. You know, yeah. you have to have discipline. And the most important thing 
is read. If you read, it's better than going to college. It's better than going to a, a book club or whatever. If you read, you're going to learn how to write. Yeah. I think so. That, what a great, yeah, that was like a few pieces of writing advice. I'll roll to tell. I love that. We got more than one. I love it. All right, Armando, before we let you go, do you by any chance have a book that you've read recently that you could recommend to us? Yeah. Um, something that you'd like to be on our radar? Well, no, I, I, I mentioned in, in the, for the newsletter, uh, newsletter that uh, so I think it was Meg that who asked me about yeah, it. Yeah, and, and the one that is still in my mind is Hamnet. The, oh my gosh, I love yes. that book so yeah. much. I love the is Maggie O'Farrell. I am a fan of her. You know, I read all her books. The, the, you know, the the personal one of her is is beautiful. But Hamnet is a masterpiece. Oh. I oh, think is is the kind of book that you start reading in historical fiction. Uh, with a simple idea, yeah. you create a world. It's, a, it's very simple. And the end of the book, I'm not going to spoil anything, is memorable. You know, it's the end and how she, you know, she found all this, this world that she created. It's, it's, it's about the stage and the emotion and the loss. Yeah. I, 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 I love that book. I love I that, that book. book. Yeah. Oh, what a great recommendation. And Patty, I think you had a book you wanted to mention tonight too. I do. I want to tell everyone, first of all, I love Hamnet. And when <laughs> I finished reading it, I was texting people to say, who read it? Because I have to talk about it. It was such a, the word I kept using was immersive. That was a truly immersive book. But I want to tell everyone out there about a book that came out yesterday by our friend, Kimmery Martin, called Doctors and friends. Kimmery is an ER doc, and this latest book focuses on a group of doctors during a pandemic. And get this, y'all, she wrote it before COVID. She had no idea. She was finished with this book before COVID. So talk about prescience. Yeah, it's crazy. The PW Starred Review says that it conveys the deeply personal as well as the bigger picture. Oh, that and sounds wonderful. I know. I just want everyone to know about it. It came out yesterday. Oh, great. It sounds good. I'll, I'll add that to the list. A nice <laughs> cover. Nice cover. Yeah, too. beautiful yeah. cover. Yeah, I love exactly. the cover. Yeah. All right, Armando, we have been so happy to have you as a guest. Thank um, so thank you so much for spending this time with us. And to thank all of you, you out we're there. Um, yeah. yeah, make sure to thank stick you. around out there because we have a double header tonight. Catherine Ray, the author of The London House is coming. But for now, Armando, we will let you go. We are so excited Thank about you your next book. Me. Thank you so and much. And hopefully I'm going to be here with a night traveler. Yes, Ooh. absolutely. We, I, we can't wait to talk about it with you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Armando, have a great Bye, night. Bye, Armando. Now, everyone, wow, he's, that Isn't story. Interesting? Yeah. Woof, man, yeah. I... So much to unpack there. But as we mentioned, we have a real treat for you, a doubleheader tonight. Novelist Catherine Ray is also joining us tonight, and we cannot wait for you to meet her. Catherine Ray is the national best-selling and award-winning author of several novels and one nonfiction book. She holds a BA and an MS from Northwestern University, graduating Phi Beta Kappa, she then worked in marketing and development before returning to graduate school for a master's of theological studies. So fascinating. Yeah. After living in Texas, England, Ireland, and Washington, 
wow, she must have gotten lost on the way. Your <laughs> <laughs> island stories are so good, though. Yeah, <laughs> she finally settled down to write. And she settled down. She lives in Chicago with her husband and three dogs. Her kids are grown. And she writes novels that she calls love letters to books. When not writing, Catherine can be found walking the neighborhood, hanging out with her kids and friends, or even occasionally fly fishing in Montana. How cool. Her new novel, The London House, which I had the privilege of blurbing, just came out last week. Sean, can you please bring Catherine on for everyone to meet? Hi, Catherine. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I don't know. How are you? Fine, thanks. How are you all? We're so happy to have you here. So the London House came out 10 days ago? 10 days ago. 10, 10 days ago, nine days ago. Yeah. Last Tuesday. Oh, it's so exciting. Yeah. I've been waiting and waiting for this book. And I won't make you tell everyone today, but um, Catherine's Irish stories are... <laughs> We need to have a whole episode of just your Ireland <laughs> stories. You had your first child there, right? No, my third. Your um, third. Which is partly why that was just so terrifying, because that third kid comes a lot faster than the first. Oh, my gosh. This <laughs> but we're not here to talk about Ireland or your child. I want and she would her. not appreciate that. The third child <laughs> would not appreciate I know that. I know that. So tell us about the London house. Oh, the London house with this great pomegranate skirt. Oh, um, it's gorgeous. Uh, it so London House is, um, it's my first dip into historical fiction. It is a split time novel. And in the past, it has the sort of the glamour um, of the inner war years and, and really the safety of those years. But then the tenor changes as the world approaches World War II and two sisters who are very close um, split apart and secrets grow between them. They fall in love, you know, all the drama of, of the young, the young twenties, but a secret does sort of occur within the family. And the present day, um, the granddaughter of one of the sisters is trying to find out what that is and how that has shadowed her family for 80 years. So it's a little bit of suspense, a little bit of mystery, um, a little bit of drama and some really good 1930s fashion. It's just a lot of fun. Oh, it, fun. it was a lot of fun. I, I loved this book. I got an early read of it. And I, I just, um, hard to imagine it's your first um, step into historical fiction because it was just so expertly woven together and so well done. Um, you. you know, here on Friends in Fiction, we always are so interested in knowing mm -hmm where the idea of a book came from. So what was the spark for this book, Catherine? And, you know, what made you say, I see a story here? Um, you know, it, it, the spark was a misperception, misunderstanding, and how that can grow and um, what that might look like over 80 years, over three <laughs> generations. It actually came, the idea came from the book that came before it of Literature and Lattes, which is a contemporary story, but it's a mother and daughter story. And each see their relationship so differently. So then I decided, let's explore that further. Let's take a, a misperception or a misunderstanding and blow it bigger. But let's not just have backstory. Let's bring that moment onto the stage. And so that's where I came up with the idea of having this split time where you see in real time what's going on, and then you see how it arcs over the 80 years. So that's where yeah. I love it. it. 
so fascinating where ideas come from. Yeah. And I was thinking we were going to say, I saw this house in London. <laughs> but I want to talk about I want to talk about research because mm -hmm. it is my favorite, as you know, research in England. I mean, sometimes it's we stuff. just write about England so that we have to do you have to go there and research. Church in England, right? So I know you went to London for research. For everyone out there, Catherine's Instagram is beautiful. She posts loads of pictures of her trip there. Um, I want you to tell me about the research. Was there a house that actually you saw that looks like it? Or tell me what kind of research you did over there. Well, it was it was it was amazing. First of all, I did live there in the early 2000s, so I knew how I wanted the story to feel and where I wanted the characters to move. However, um, I did know I needed to see some SOE documents. I needed to get into the National Archives. Yeah. So I wanted to go in April of 2020, <laughs> and my husband said, "No, no, no. We have a we have a five day weekend coming up with our child who is still at home at the time. Let's take her and go at the end of February." So I rushed everything together. I got my reading passes and we went over for four days. And it really was like Carolyn's contemporary journey. It was a race to learn all I could. Um, two days in the National Archives, a day at the British Library, uh, Imperial War Museum, Churchill's War Rooms. And it was just nonstop, um, very frenetic and fantastic. And if I'd waited two more weeks, I would you never have gotten there. Oh, no, I know. So it really was amazing. Um, and that is what really brought the book to life. Um, I had no idea that I could touch those documents. Like I had in my hand the original memo that Winston Churchill signed in pencil to start the SOE. Ah, at the beginning how, of the war. I mean, it was incredible. Cool. It was okay, so tell cool. everyone what an SOE is. Okay, an so the, the SOE is the Special Operations Exec Executive. And okay. that was Britain's first foray into the spy world. They had intelligence gathering and reconnaissance with you know, the early days of MI5, MI6, but this was true sabotage, spy, blow things up. Um, yeah. that kind of stuff. And that was the SOE. It was considered very ungentlemanly warfare. <laughs> Is there anything you discovered in your research at all that flipped the story you thought you were telling? Um, flipped the story. Well, let's see. I think the SOD, SOE documents really brought it to life and made it okay. made things more urgent and more on the ground and more tactical, that kind of feel. But one thing that really didn't flip it, but enhanced it was um, researching Elsa Schiaparelli and the fashions in the 1930s, because I had never linked fashion with politics. Fashion oh, wow. as an expression of your worldview. Fashion as more than what you wore, but how you felt about yourself, your image to the world the world around you. I mean, it was incredible. And researching the way she approached fashion and researching her, her um, different collections in the 1930s, it, it, that was a whole new level of, I, I mean, I just thought a sweater was a sweater. A sweater is not yeah. a sweater. <laughs> yeah. So it was amazing. That was amazing. And she's the designer behind, and I have a, oh my goodness, I have no idea where it is. I have a picture and everybody go look it up, but she was the designer behind 
the um, Duchess of Windsor's lobster dress, the capstone of her trousseau. You know, Salvador Dali designed the lobster, but Elsa Schiaparelli was the dress's designer. And um, and there's so much great history with the Duchess of Windsor and the abdication of King Edward VIII. And, you know, it's all tied together and it's amazing. Yeah. You know, Catherine, I always think it's so interesting to know about the first draft of a book yeah. versus the last draft. And, you know, we just heard from Armando about, you know, finishing a 200,000 word book, which made me feel super glad That's about what I that make you feel better, my friend? <laughs> I know it made me feel way better. But um, would you talk about that and, and, you know, how the first draft and how different or how Maybe nothing changed in your final draft. You know, a lot changed. Um, so interesting. The, the letters had the letters at first were much more exposition and prose, et cetera. And then I realized that I needed to dip in and out of history with the letters and really get people on the ground. So I had to tighten them up. Um, and so that was very different. And the the past characters really became almost the leading ladies through that process which shifted the whole narrative um, wow. also. Um, I think what also really changed from draft to draft was making sure that the links between the past and the contemporary storyline were really tight. Yeah. By putting the past in letters and diary entries, they were able to sort of in real time talk to each other. Yeah. And I had to make sure that that communication was two-way um, and you know they weren't running parallel. And so I think that's, when I went over it again and again, that's what I was trying to hone, those connections, um, just to make them really tight. Otherwise, I, I kind of felt they might be floating a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. I think it's always interesting for our readers to realize that, you know, they're not reading first or second oh, draft. No. <laughs> Right. And sometimes, I mean, even a point of view changes from the first draft to the last, oh, yeah. but we have something really exciting because <laughs> Sean has found the lobster dress photo. Okay. There it is. So I'm going to tell you real quick tell us about it. Yeah. Like this, this is amazing. So the lobster Dolly wanted the lobster to snap up at the Duchess's private parts. Gaparelli uh, said she, you know, absolutely not. And so she got the more, it's a little less aggressive. The fan is up, slows her down, but it's still a very provocative dress. Now, remember, this is 1938. The wow. panel that you see as orange, that is actually transparent. Ooh, for 38. So for yeah. 1938, right. The entire dress weighed less than one pound. Wow. It was so thin. So, I mean, almost the whole thing was almost transparent. It was amazing. But as in now, here's a really great picture um, or the great image. Dolly wanted to slather the entire dress in mayonnaise. He came to the <laughs> studio. He came to Schiaparelli's salon with a massive jar and he threatened to drench the whole thing in mayonnaise. I mean, there are two reasons we know he didn't do it. Number one, Scaparelli swore she'd never work with him again if he did. And the next year they came out with, and this is, this is when you read something and you don't hear something. The tears dress, 
So I thought this dress was going to be lighter than this one. It was going to be blue and green and like tears. Yeah. Sort of like Mayfay sweater there. But it's not. It's the tears dress. And you can look that one up as well. It is a white silk gown with tears taken out of it with brown and hot pink and red underneath like you were tearing through the dress into the woman inside. Oh, my. So, I mean, just... Fascinating dresses, fascinating time. But anyway, there's the lobster dress. I, I mean, that lobster dress, and I've heard the term before, but I thought, always I, thought it meant that it was like the color, which I think yeah. it was more like a pomegranate color than a lobster yeah. color. Yeah. But it was, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's, I mean, but that was the thing. And, and right in 1938, think about 1938, Hitler has already annexed Austria. He, by the end, he's been given the Munich Agreement in September 30th, which gave him part of Czechoslovakia, the Sudetenland. Right. So he's on the move. And Scaparelli puts on the biggest party ever for her circus collection. I'm talking whimsy, extravagance, acrobats tumbling through her salon windows. I mean, it, it's just an amazing sort of time and the wow. fashions of the time, but what was going on at the time. So it's a lot of fun. What a cool <laughs> thing to write about. Really I know. <laughs> and sometimes when we're writing historical fiction, we don't, we find out that one little thing and then yeah. the whole yeah. thing changes. Well, you All know, right. my, my, my brother's getting married this weekend. So I'm just going to show mm -hmm. up with a big jar of mayonnaise for the in case the bride would like to, you know, <laughs> any, any last minute touch ups. I'm like, oh Dolly, God. Dolly would recommend. <laughs> Dolly exactly. would recommend it. <laughs> so Catherine, thank you so much for joining us tonight. If you would not mind sticking around for a few more minutes, Patty has one additional question for you. Um, and I think that our viewers out there might be fascinated to learn something big that you and Patty have in common. So I'm just going to leave oh. it there. <laughs> but first, we want to remind all of you out there to check out our Friends and Fiction Writer's Block podcasts. We always talk about them. Y'all have to go check them out. They are just getting better and better, and they are so much fun. And if you like hanging out with us here, you will love being there. A new episode launches every single Friday. And this past week, our Ron Block for the Writer's Block podcast and Kristen talked to James Haunty and Sarah Lanofsky about middle grade series authors. But this Friday, Mary Kay talks to her agent, Stort Kachevsky, and I hope I said that right, and powerhouse editor, Pam Dorman of hits like Secret Life of Bees. They also happen to be married to each other, Pam and Stort, not Mary Kay and Stort. And for any, of our writers, for any of our writers out there, this is an absolute must listen. I got an early listen and it is like a master class in what agents and editors look for in their stories. It's a fascinating interview. Thanks. It, and if you're not ha hanging out with us yet in the Friends and, Fischl, uh, Friends and Fiction official book club yet, you are missing out. The group, which is separate from us and is run by our friends Lisa Harrison and Brenda Gardner, is now nearly 10,000 strong. Yeah. This mm -hmm. month, they're reading Once Upon a Wardrobe by Patty, and they'll they'll be discussing that with Patty just a few days from now, this Monday, the 15th. And you've heard about our amazing reading journals, right? I mean, you have heard about these things. I, I so believe awesome. 
These <laughs> are so flash, flash. I think we have a picture of us holding them up too. Yeah. I am so obsessed with this reading journal. It is gorgeous. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. Um, it is so gorgeous. It has this blue linen cover and pages to review all your books. And I know what I am giving people for Christmas. So yeah. watch out all of my friends. <laughs> but it pairs perfectly with the book. The inside pages have all these different places. It's not just blank. It has these amazing yeah, places to write what you're reading, what you think of the book. Yep. Yeah, and I think Christy designed it along with the folks at Oxford Exchange. So she did. yeah, they did mm -hmm. such a great job. Okay, so make sure to join us for our next episode of Friends in Fiction next Wednesday, the 17th, right here at 7 p.m. Eastern as we celebrate Thanksgiving a week early and welcome chef, restaurant owner, and author Vivian Howard. Then in two weeks, which is Thanksgiving week, join us as we welcome Ellen Hildebrand and celebrate our 100th episode. I don't even know how that's possible. We've done 100 episodes. All right. And if you are ever wondering about our schedule, it is always on the Friends and Fiction website. And the fall schedule is on our Facebook banner. And I believe we'll be posting a couple more authors tomorrow yep. on that banner. So you'll tomorrow want to be right there on our Facebook page. Yeah. yeah. All right, Catherine, we yeah. have talked with you before on our podcast about what inspires some of your other books, which you say yeah. are love letters to books. Mm -hmm. And I know that both of us have taken a deep dive into C.S. Lewis yeah. that have yeah. resonated. So mm -hmm. I think that sometimes as writers, there's one theme we return to again and again in our work. Mm -hmm. And do you see that in your work? I definitely do. Um, as you, you say, theme, yes, but also writer. Um, I yeah. will tell you that, as Armando said earlier, that he gets his ideas from reading. You, know, you can get them from anywhere yeah. in the world, but he gets his from reading. So do I, and mostly they come from C.S. Lewis. I have wow. to I, there's just something the way that he writes is online with how I think. Yeah. Um, and so... I mean, I, I mean, I can just rattle off. If you've ever read, of course, I, I'm not prepared with like my books. Oh, here. Hang on. So Lizzie and Jane, for me, this is an actual an exploration of C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, but in fiction. Yeah. What would compel someone to put those four loves back in her life? Um, and the Bronte plot is the great divorce. But on this side of heaven, everybody's alive. Um, so his themes of, uh, you know, and they're, and they're so logical. There's a wonderful logic to him that resonates with me. And, and so, yes, I've, I've always got hope and redemption and things like that. But I also have that very pragmatic side of me, which Lewis speaks to. Oh, so, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> That's when we first went, met, when... Catherine and I first met, we were like, okay, we're you talking too? about it. And see, <laughs> and see, that's, that's a Lewis quote as well. When you look at someone else and you say, you too, you too. that's yes. when a friendship begins. Exactly. Yep. All right, Catherine, thank you so much for visiting Absolutely. us. We thank love you. talking to you and good luck with the London house. Everybody needs to grab this book. It's amazing. It oh, is. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, to all of you out there, make sure to stay for our Talking Turkey with Butterball after show, which I love. I love that.
I like talking turkey. Talking turkey with Butterball. And yeah. don't forget that as we approach our 100th episode in just two weeks, you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We are live there every week, as well as being live on Facebook. And if you subscribe on YouTube, you will not miss a thing. Plus, you'll have access to some special short clips. So be sure to come back next week, same time, same place, as we welcome Vivian Howard. We'll see you in a minute to talk turkey in the after show. Hi. Everybody out there. I'm just thinking since we're doing the talk turkey after show, there's going to be a prize for the first one of us who shows up in like one of his you know, like with like some pomegranates dotted around it for some decoration, you know, like one of the little very Thanksgiving ones. So yeah, I, I'm giving out a prize for the first Prince Fiction author who shows up in a I house. think it's gonna Kristen, your sound is um garble. Oh, we it's garbled. Is that is that oh, better? Are you back? Oh, I was probably just yeah. leaning back too much. I'm sorry. I'm so exhausted. I'm, I'm just, just trying to get over the butterball fan. <laughs> exactly. All right. So Mary I love Kay. What Mary Kay wears <laughs> the turkey hat with pomegranates. I, I, yeah. I suspect she'll be the first. I don't know. Don't count me out though. We'll see. Okay. All okay. right. So Mary Kay told you earlier in the show tonight that we've partnered with Butterball for the ne next two months to talk turkey, so to speak. So this year, Butterball is celebrating the 40th anniversary of its turkey talk line. So the turkey talk line, which, you know, we probably all remember, kind of comes up every Thanksgiving, right? It started as just a phone line, but now they have a website mm -hmm. and a Facebook page. And you guys, they're on Instagram and TikTok, right? You're like, not even on TikTok and the person talk line is? I okay. know, I know. Butterball is way cooler than I am. Yeah. All right. Of course, we all know we can call in with last minute questions on Thanksgiving Day. But what I didn't know is they're actually open from the beginning of November through the end of December. So if you have any turkey questions at all about, you know, can you defrost a chicken or a chicken? Can you defrost a turkey? <laughs> you know, for for a year. Can you do this? Can you do that? Like how to defrost? If you have questions, you can find it on their website now, or you can call into the talk line. And you know, the time for Turkey remains after Thanksgiving. Yes, so you can call in all December and, you know, we're going to be talking lots about other things you can do with Turkey too in, you know, November and December. But anyhow, if you have Turkey questions, give them a call, check out their website and you know, it, it's listed right there. If, but if you forget to write it down, you can just Google it or you can go to butterball.com and there's a little link right at the top. Pretty easy to That's find. so cool. I cannot believe that we're two weeks yeah. from Thanksgiving. I mean, it was just March and we were talking yeah. about surviving Savannah and now we're like talking about Turkey. And I mean, you guys know, I am not the chef or the cook of this happy foursome of us, of friends and fiction, but my mother-in-law is a gourmet chef, a literal gourmet chef, like got the gourmet chef um, piece of paper that says that you are. And when we first got married, I thought I'm going to try really hard to be a really good cook. And then I realized that I was never going to be a gourmet cook. So I just thought, now I'm a passable cook. Sometimes you just don't, don't Wait, give up. But, um, cook. You've, you are a very good cook. I'm I have eaten your meals. You're it's a very good cook. And scrambled eggs and those gluten-free biscuits. I'm good those at that. Biscuits. Oh my goodness, mm. those taco balls you made us? Those I made yeah. a taco ball. That's yeah. true. But I have no idea about the turkey talk line. Literally no idea. And I bet I'm in charge of Thanksgiving this year. And I bet <gasps> I'm going to call it. So. Yeah. I like it. 
How about um, you, Kathy? What, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? I'm cooking a turkey. Okay. Now, do you, every year? do you do it every year, Mary Kay? Uh, yeah, yeah. You usually. Do. Now, Tom is usually the uh, in charge of the turkey. Tom Turkey. Get that? Tom Turkey. Tom. Um, so he is usually in charge of that. And I am usually in charge of the sides and the desserts. And um, so we usually have extended family come. Our um, nephews and their wives and families come. And um, my daughter, Katie, and son-in-law, Mark, and the kids. And I hope my son, Andy, and his gang will be here this year. We will We will see. But, yeah. Um, and uh, Tom, every year he tries something different. Like he's he's been he's been brining for the last few years. You know the whole Martha Stewart thing where you yeah yeah, yeah. and you put it in ice and do all this stuff. Um, but I actually I bought a um, I bought a butterball turkey breast this week because I thought you know I'm gonna I'm gonna cook one of those ahead of time. Ooh. Oh, that's so smart. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I'm totally stealing that idea. I'm totally because I'm panicked that the one I ordered isn't big enough for, for yeah. of us getting together. And maybe I should have genius. You're a genius. Yeah. And you know what I like to do? Um, one of my friend's mothers, Mavi, taught me to do the um, oven roasting bag. Yes. It's simple. Yes. It's a turkey breast. It's yep. genius. Okay. So I roast every time. Well, Not only do y'all enrich my life, make, <laughs> me, make me write at 7 a.m. and do my pages. <laughs> now you're saving my Thanksgiving. Wait, Kristen, how was California? Oh, it was so good. It was such a whirlwind. It was just, it was four days. I, I feel like it was like meeting, 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 speaking engagement, speaking engagement, meeting, meeting, meeting. Like that's how it went. But it was all good. I got to see some old friends. And, um, awesome. you know, I had two really great speaking engagements with um, both of them were with Martha Hall Kelly yeah, and um, Alka Joshi, who's fantastic. And yeah. then Susan Meisner moderated one of them, too. Yeah. So it was just really good to see them. And um, it was fun. Well, Kathy, did, Mary Kay, did she do panels? With someone else? I did. Is that, is that what she's I did. I, I cheated on you guys. Sorry. It sounds like she did. <laughs> I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Is, <laughs> so in other words, she paneled with someone else. I paneled. <laughs> she's a serial paneler. Oh, my gosh. She's a charter and a paneler. <laughs> did my mother teach me no manners, charting you and paneling all over the place? And Mary Kay, you were in Tybee. How was that? Yeah, I was, um, it was so cold and rainy. Cold and rainy. I, you know, um, I had a signing at my friend Susan's shop at uh, Seaside Sisters. And um, we knew that there were going to be King Tides um, this past weekend. So uh, Friday, um, they put out an alert. The weather service put out an alert that the tides would be so high, they would cover Highway 80. There's only one road on and off Tybee Island, and that's US 80. And so we were, you know, kind of freaking out. But um, it was cold. It was rainy. It was windy. But... 
um, the tide did not cover US 80 on Saturday. It did, however, on Sunday. So I and I was oh. you know, going to meet you at Palmetto Bluff. So I had to wait. Um, no, it was uh, Monday. No, Sunday. I had to wait until after one Sunday because the road was covered and closed. I mean, it, it was such a crazy rain. Mary Kay and I were both down there. Yeah. It rained. I'm, I'm not kidding you. I think it rained for 29 straight hours. Oh, wow. Pat and I kept looking at each other about every hour. We'd go, it's still raining. Oh, my goodness. It's still raining. Yeah, I had. it was raining so hard that night I had Halloween candy for dinner. I was going to go get Halloween candy for that. As one does, I said, oh, I could go out and get uh, takeout or I could just, you know, eat some Halloween candy. That works. That works, too. I don't need a rainstorm to eat Halloween candy. Speaking of weird weather, when I was in L.A., it was really foggy. And I was staying on the 18th floor of a hotel. And I woke up in the morning and, like, eagerly, you know, tore the curtain back to see my sweeping view of L.A. And I literally couldn't see anything. Like, it was, like, the fog was that dense. It was so weird. It was like, um, it was like being inside of, like, a big white blanket. But, like, it felt very claustrophobic. I've never really experienced it like that before. Kristen texted me a picture out her window. I said, you're in the milk carton. <laughs> yes, like it was like milk eating carton. milk. You're right. It was weird. Yeah, I forgot I showed you that. It's like you're in a milk carton. Oh, we're finally off having adventures out in the world. It's crazy. Oh, it felt weird. It felt, it was my first time on a plane in, in almost two years. But, um, wow. But once I got there, it, it felt it felt pretty normal. And this week, you are headed off to your brother's wedding. Yeah, he's getting married in Hawaii, which will be my first time there. So that's going to be really exciting. Mm, well, we're going to miss you. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going to miss the show next week. It's going to be so strange not to be with you, ladies. But Well, guess what, everyone? We have a surprise guest host next week because Kristen's not there. <laughs> <laughs> come show up to see who our surprise guest host is. You'll be really oh, excited. Yeah. 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 And um Patty, you have something going on this weekend? You have something going on, right? I know. I just get to go. I'm going to Auburn to see my yeah. son. It'll be okay. This is kind <laughs> of a big deal. Um, because this is my, you know, we're we all we've been talking a lot about last lately because Meg, you know, is going through some lasts with her son graduating from high school. This is my last home game with my son in college at Auburn University. Wow. Yeah. So we're going down to watch Auburn beat Mississippi State and um, spend time with my senior college son. It's his last home game. Oh, that's that's awesome. That's bittersweet, but that's awesome. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. All right, y'all. This was a great night. I love double headers. Yeah, it was yeah. great. Yeah. Wow, talking about turkey, I'm hungry. I know. Off no. we go. I'm just tired. It's, you know? <laughs> it's not I was going to say, you have had like the travel. Wow. And we've got to leave so early for the airport tomorrow. I think my head's already spinning. And you know, like when you have a flight in the morning, sometimes you just don't sleep that well, you know? No. Like as you're worrying about it, I just know that's going to be tonight for me. I'm always afraid, like, the battery on my phone's going to die. Yes! The alarm isn't going to go off. Totally. Yep. So I wake up and I check. And then I check. Yeah, like, oh, 2 a.m. And then you're married to my husband. He insists we, however 
what time you think you should get to the airport, Tom always thinks we have to get there another hour earlier. Yeah, that's how yeah. I am. I'm, I'm, now, the, I'm the Tom in our relationship. <laughs> you know, sleep at the airport. Let's, just stay, let's go and let's just stay in the airport. <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna call you Tom the Turkey from now on. <laughs> <laughs> all right, speaking well, of, I gotta go get some supper. I gotta see what all, right. Doing. all right, all right, bye. Bye. Good night, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at seven p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.